0: I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning part of chapter 8. And the page number for where we are in the red Bibles and the chairs around you is printed for you in your bulletins. begin reading in chapter 7 in verse 53 and then I'll read down to chapter 8 verse 11. They went each to his own house but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in these moments as we read your word and as We contemplate what it says and what it means. We pray for that Holy Spirit to be at work in us, enabling us to see and understand. Pray particularly that you would help us to see Jesus today. That we would see grace that abounds. Grace that is greater than all our sin. We ask this in his name. Amen. One of the things that I think confirms the authenticity of the Bible is all of the stories that we have in the scriptures that detail the the deep extent of the depravity of the human heart. I mean, why would those dark stories be in the scriptures unless they were true? I mean, we can think about a number of them that come to mind. One would be Exodus chapter one, when Pharaoh... Orders the midwives to kill any male child born to the women of Israel. Or we might think of 1 Kings chapter 21 when Queen Jezebel uh, orders for uh, Naboth to be killed just so that she could give his vineyard to her husband, King Ahab. We could think of Matthew chapter 2 with... King Herod, as he gave the order for every male child in the city of Bethlehem and in the surrounding area under the two years of age to be killed. We could think of Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit, lied and stole from the church, and then died as a result. It's been said that perhaps one of the darkest and most depraved events is what we have here in this passage in front of us, the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 of John. Certainly adultery is dark and damaging and devastating, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what these religious authorities, these religious leaders did to this woman, how they treated her, they used her, almost destroyed her life and almost even got her killed for the single purpose of their own agenda of trying to trap and arrest Jesus. Now, thankfully, Jesus didn't let it happen. And in fact, he spoke some of the most precious words in all of Scripture to this lady. So today, what I want us to do is to look, first of all, at the text itself. There are some things, some questions that we need to deal with with regarding the, the text itself. But then secondly, we're going to look and see the trap that these religious authorities set for Jesus. And then thirdly, we'll see the truth that Jesus brings to bear into the situation And then we'll ask, so what, and think about how this applies to us today. So first of all, we need to talk a little bit about the text that we're looking at. Most of your copies probably have brackets around this passage. And if you have the ESV translation, it actually has double brackets around uh, the beginning and the end of the passage. You might also have a footnote or a parenthetical comment that says something like, The earliest manuscripts do not have chapter 7 verse 53 to chapter 8 verse 11. So what's going on here? What what is going on with this passage? Well, as you all know, during the days of when the books of the Bible were being written, there were no Xerox machines. Uh, You couldn't go to Kinko's and get photocopies. You couldn't take a photograph of it. There was no mechanical copying of God's word. So in order to get copies that could be distributed and sent out to God's people, every word, every verse, every chapter, every book had to be copied by hand. So, for example, when Moses finished writing the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as he finished uh, the writing, then copyists would begin to make copies so that it could be sent out to God's people. There were strict rules. There were processes that had to be followed in order to be a scribe, to be a a copyist over time. Copies of the copies were made, and then copies of those copies were made, and so on and so on, so that we have literally thousands and thousands of manuscripts of the biblical books, more than any other ancient document or book. Now, no one claims that the copyists, the scribes, were inspired or perfect, And over the centuries, there were some copying mistakes that took place. Now, now some scholars try to use that reality to say that the Bible has so many errors in it that it's not worth your time, that you can't trust it. But any fear of that is removed when we understand that about 98% of the mistakes are simple things like a spelling error. Or a word that was written down twice or a sentence that was duplicated. Very few of of the copying errors are substantive. But the passage that we have in front of us today is one of those substantive passages. The the Bible is the most attested document that we have in history. As I mentioned, thousands and thousands of manuscripts. Most of them uh, from the 400s A.D. and after small number came earlier and many of those manuscripts from the 400s and after have this passage in them now when we compare that with the second closest attested document homer's iliad and odyssey it's rather remarkable there are only about two dozen manuscripts of the iliad and the odyssey and the earliest one is a thousand years ago which was almost two thousand years after it was written So we have many, many more manuscripts of the Bible, and they are much closer to when the Bible was written. You may know that in the 19th and 20th centuries, we came across and found uh, older Bible manuscripts in the Middle East. They dated back to the 200s A.D., Many of those earlier manuscripts don't have this passage in them, or they have the passage in a different place in the book of John, or they have the passage in the book of Luke. Excuse me. Now, add to that that the language here, the syntax of these verses is pretty different than the rest of John's Gospel. So, many scholars, including uh, those in our circles, believe that these verses weren't originally in John's Gospel. So, you might be wondering then, why are you preaching on it? Well, it might not have originally been in John's Gospel, and maybe it wasn't written by John. But that doesn't mean that it isn't a true story that took place during the earthly ministry of Jesus. I believe what we have here is an authentic, inspired eyewitness account of an historical event that took place in Jesus' day. In fact, this story is found in a third century commentary. And the man Papias, who lived around 100 AD, actually referenced this, references this story. There is nothing in this passage that contradicts anything else in the word of God. In fact, what we have in this passage complements and confirms what the Bible says in other places about the gospel and about God's grace. And I think that it actually does belong right here in John's gospel, not in another part of the book, not in in Luke, because it fits so well with what's happening in the context of chapter seven and chapter eight. And it leads us in a very good way. So the transition that we get with Jesus's I am statement in verse 12 about being the light of the world. So for all of those reasons, this is a passage that we need to read and reflect on and to seek to apply to our lives. So let's actually look at the text itself. And I want you to see the trap that these religious authorities tried to set for Jesus. Remind yourself of the context Back in chapter 7, verse 32, the religious authorities were getting more and more upset with Jesus. As Jesus was speaking truth, as he was healing, as he was doing miracles, people were getting riled up. And we're told that the Pharisees and the scribes were getting more and more concerned. So back in verse 32 of chapter 7, they sent the officers of the temple to go arrest Jesus. But we saw there that when they got to Jesus and they heard what he was saying, they were so amazed that they didn't arrest him. And they went back to the scribes and the Pharisees empty-handed, which caused them to become quite angry. Now, as we pick up our story here in verse 53, we see that what happened was after that everybody dispersed for the night. But early the next morning, Jesus went back to the temple. And a large group of people went to him in the temple. And so Jesus sat down and he began to teach them. You see the context here. It's a very public venue. Lots of people around. They're listening to Jesus teach. And the religious leaders thought this would be the perfect time and place to try to trap him. So what was the trap? Well, you can see that beginning in verse 3 of chapter 8. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they bring... This woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They brought her into the midst of the crowd in the temple. And then they explained to Jesus that she had been caught in the act. And then they rightly referenced something that Moses said. Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 22, it says that if someone's caught in the act of adultery, it was a capital offense and they were to be killed. They were to be stoned. And then they asked for Jesus' opinion. Should she be stoned or should she be let go? Should we follow the law or should we be gracious? Now, John specifically tells us, just to make it very clear, this was a test. This was a trap. They were trying to get Jesus to say something or to do something that then could be a chargeable offense against him. In fact, they didn't even really need Jesus' opinion at all. If they were truly interested in justice in the situation, they would have taken it to the Sanhedrin, who often ruled on such matters as this. No, they had something else. They had ulterior motives. They were using this woman as a means of setting a trap for Jesus. And what would that trap do? Well, if Jesus answered their question by saying that the woman should be shown grace, then he could be charged with disregarding the law of God. It would discredit Jesus with the people who uh, saw him as someone who knew the law of God, someone who kept the law of God. And even worse than that, it likely would be used by these religious authorities to bring a serious charge against Jesus that he was a lawbreaker. But if Jesus answered that the woman should indeed be stoned, then he might be accused of disregarding love and grace. It would discredit Jesus with the people who heard him constantly talking about grace and mercy and kindness. It would contradict how Jesus was regularly showing mercy to sinners. It also would make sinners a lot less likely to come to him for help. I mean, if, after all, what he's going to do is throw them under the bus with the religious authorities. And on top of all of that, it would have got him in trouble with the Roman authorities who alone had the power to bring capital punishment into a situation. This, this plan was brilliant. It was, it was ingenious. No matter what Jesus would say. They had him trapped. Or at least they thought they did. Now before we look at how Jesus responded to this trap with the truth. We need to appreciate how vile it was. What these religious authorities did. Did. The law was quite clear regarding a charge like this. The burden of proof was significant and was specific and was weighty. No circumstantial evidence was sufficient. You, you couldn't bring the charge and convict someone on this because of a rumor that you heard. Uh, you couldn't even uh, bring a conviction uh, about somebody on this just because you saw the woman leave the man's house. Uh, You couldn't even do it if you saw lipstick on his collar. No, no circumstantial evidence was sufficient. The evidence that was required was two eyewitnesses that caught them in the act. One rabbi that was talking about this situation, the law, uh, what the law says and the evidence that's required says that an eyewitness would have to be so certain that there could be no possible explanation for the movement observed. One non-biblical account from the same time frame talks about eyewitnesses who brought the same accusation about a different couple who happened to take place outside underneath a tree. And as the judge began to question the witnesses, he asked what kind of tree it was that they witnessed this, this act taking place under. And the witnesses disagreed and so the judge threw the case out. Consequently, because the the, the requirement of the evidence is so stringent, there were almost never convictions and executions for adultery. It was extremely difficult to get the needed evidence. Unless. Unless it was a setup. And most biblical commentators think that that's exactly what we're reading in these verses. That these religious leaders created a situation where this woman was perhaps seduced, maybe enticed to get drunk, who knows? But did you notice? Where's the man? Where's the man? When they brought this woman, they brought her alone to Jesus. In Leviticus 20... And Deuteronomy 22 are very clear. Both parties are guilty and both parties are to be executed. But they only brought the woman to Jesus. Why? Well, either they let the man go or even worse. The man was one of the religious leaders and they were covering it up. Either way, the way that these religious leaders treated and used this woman is vile and horrific and evil. But thankfully, they didn't bring her to a judge. They brought her to Jesus. And Jesus spoke truth in the midst of the trap. He spoke truth first to the accusers. You can see that at the end of verse 6 and going down to verse 9. So they asked him this question. They wanted to know his opinion. And what did he do? Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Did you notice how Jesus responded to the question? He basically ignored them. He didn't answer the question. Instead, he bent down onto the ground and he began to write with his finger on the ground. Now, there's been so much speculation about what Jesus was writing. Uh, I saw things this week as I was studying for this. Some of them thought, well, maybe he was listing the, the sins of the accusers of the religious authorities. Um, some suggested that maybe he was, he was writing out what he was about to say, which was a very common practice in the Roman courts. Others said uh, that he was writing down Jeremiah 17, verse 3, which specifically condemns false witnesses. The truth is, we don't know what Jesus wrote. And John decided that we didn't need to know because he didn't include it. But what we see here in verse 7 is that these religious leaders are not going to allow Jesus to just keep ignoring them. And so we're told in verse 7 that they kept asking Jesus the question. The, the verb tense there has this sense of asking over and over and over again. And the picture we have here is that Jesus is the one that's in control of this situation. He'll talk when he's ready. They can't force him. They can't draw him into a corner. They can't trap him. He's the one that's in control of this situation. And so Jesus stands up and then he says what he said to them at the end of verse 7. And then what did he do? He bent back down and he started writing on the ground again. Now, what did Jesus say to them? He said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What what is Jesus not saying here? What is he not saying? He's not saying that only a sinless person could judge sin. Because that would mean no one would ever be judged, uh, convicted. No one would ever be punished for their crimes. And that's unjust. And Jesus is not unjust. So what was Jesus saying here? He was reminding these, these religious leaders what the Jewish law taught about eyewitnesses. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, it's clear that an eyewitness had to be free from any association with the crime that they witnessed. They could have had no involvement in order to be a credible eyewitness. And they were also required to throw the first stones at the one that they were accusing. So how did the accusers respond to Jesus' response to them? Well, we we see that in verse 9. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. One by one, they sulked away with the older ones leaving first. They all knew that they were guilty. They had set it up. They had let the man go and they were using this woman for their own purposes to try to trap Jesus. And so they walked away with guilty consciences, full of shame, dumbfounded, no doubt of how Jesus had somehow not fallen into their trap and probably seething with anger. They walked away convicted by the truth that Jesus spoke. Jim Boyce in his commentary says, obviously, there was something in the gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ, or in the tone of his voice, or simply in the power of his presence that got through to these men, unrepentant as they were, and left them powerless. Think of the efforts they had gone through. Think of the plotting. Yet they were destroyed in a moment when they were confronted by the God who masters circumstances Jesus spoke truth to the accusers but Jesus spoke truth to the woman as well you see that in verses 10 and 11 Jesus stood up and said to her woman where are they has no one condemned you she said no one Lord and Jesus said neither do I condemn you go and from now on sin no more can you just hear, can you just hear in these words the compassion of Jesus for her? The, the gentleness, the kindness. He, he addresses her with the word woman. It was a, a term of dignity, a term of, of respect. And, and notice, he didn't ask her if she was guilty. He knew that she was guilty and he knew that she knew that she was guilty. Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. Now that word Lord, it could actually be translated as sir. She could simply be uh, using a a word of respect for Jesus. But it also can mean Lord. And did did she understand that Jesus was the Lord? Did she understand that Jesus was her Lord? We don't ultimately know. But what we do know is that Jesus' final words to her in in these verses are some of the most important and precious words in all of Scripture. Verse 11, he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Now, what was Jesus not saying here? What was he not saying here? He, he, He was not saying, you know what? It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. That, that's an old law. Everybody's doing it these days. Just, just forget about it. You're, you're fine. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What was Jesus saying to her? It is, it's as if Jesus was saying, I came into this world not to condemn it, but to save it. And in a short time, I am going to the cross and I will give my life for yours. I will pay for your sins. The law demands that you die for your sins and I will satisfy the demands of the law. Your sin will be put on me and I will take it to the cross and I will make payment in full for it. I will be condemned. I will have the wrath of God poured out on me so that you can hear the verdict. No condemnation. So you can hear Paul in Romans 8 say, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus was saying to her, you aren't condemned. You're forgiven. Now go out and live like a redeemed child of God. Go out and lean against and fight against your sin and grow in grace and holiness for the rest of your life. As we see the truth that Jesus is speaking to this woman, it it brings us to that question of, so what? What what do we take away from this? Three things for you today. The first is, we can never reverse the order of Jesus' words. The, the, The order of the words that Jesus said to the woman are of the utmost importance to us. He says to her, you are not condemned. You are forgiven. So now go live a life of holiness. He says, you are justified, you've been declared righteous, now go live a sanctified life. Justification always leads to sanctification and the order can never be reversed. Jesus never says to us, go get your life right and then I will love you and accept you. Jesus never says to us, stop your sinning and then I will declare you righteous. Jesus never says to us, go get sanctified and then you will be justified in my sight. When you reverse the order, you have something other than biblical Christianity. You no longer have the gospel of grace. And as we think about these words that Jesus said to her in the order of them, we start to see the sweetness of the gospel. We remember the line in the hymn that we sing uh, so often. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Martin Luther said, if you have tasted the law and sin, and if you know the ache of sin, then look here at Jesus and see how sweet in comparison the grace of God is, the grace which is offered to us in the gospel. I wonder if there's anyone here who can relate to this woman and all that she must have been feeling as she was standing there in front of Jesus before he spoke these words to her. Perhaps feeling the shame and guilt of your sin. Being weighed down and wearied by your sin. Maybe because of sin that's going on right now in your life. Or maybe sin that's happened in your past. And the words that Jesus spoke to this woman are the same words that he speaks to you. In Christ, there is now no condemnation for you. You need to hear Jesus's words of grace and mercy and never reverse the order. And that leads to a second. So what a second takeaway for for us today? God's grace must change us. There is no condemnation, he says. So now go out and grow in your obedience to the word of God. You remember back earlier in our service, the passage in Zechariah that we read, Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua, the high priest, was standing before the Lord and before Satan. Satan was accusing him and the Lord rebuked Satan. Then he took off the dirty garments that Joshua was wearing and he clothed him in a clean, pure, new set of clothes. And then he told Joshua, now go out and walk in the ways of the Lord. Go be faithful to the word. Go and serve and obey the Lord. It's a picture of what God does for each of us as his children, for all who are in Christ Jesus. He has removed your accuser and he has removed the accusations and he has removed your filthy garments and he has clothed you with the Perfect, pure righteousness of Jesus Christ, and then he sends you out to walk in the way of the Lord to be faithful to His word and to love and obey him, never perfectly we 're still a sinner until we die or the Lord Jesus returns, but over the course of our life, we are pursuing growing in christ likeness. Rick Phillips, in his commentary on this passage, said, the law was once over our heads as a threat, but now it is under our feet as a guide for godly living. One of the ways that we grow in likeness is we consistently make use of these tools that God has given us, these means of grace, uh, the Word of God, communing with the Lord in prayer, gathering to worship the Lord God Almighty, fellowshipping with God's people, uh, participating in the Lord's Supper and baptism. Are you making use of the tools that God has given you? Are you are you making use of these these wonderful blessings, these means of grace that you might grow in your Christ likeness? God's grace must change us, not only causing us to grow in our obedience to the word of God, but it also uh, must change us in how we treat other people. The more that we understand God's grace to us, the more that we comprehend what Jesus has done for us the more that we must be loving and gracious and compassionate in response to other people. God's grace must soften our hearts so that we treat people with dignity and care and compassion, certainly not like these religious leaders treated this woman, using her for their own gain, willing to entrap her and destroy her life so they could trap Jesus. Rather, Because of how much we've been loved and cared for by the Lord, we must respond the same way in loving and caring for others. Are there people in your life that you treat like the leaders treated this woman? Thirdly and lastly, a third takeaway. We need to be careful how we use God's word. The, the religious leaders in this passage used the word of God in an attempt to trap Jesus. They referred to it and applied it into the life circumstance that they had in front of them. But their motivation was evil. They weaponized God's word and they took God's holy words and they used them as a weapon to try to inflict pain and even kill Jesus. Do you ever do that? Do you ever use God's word as a weapon? Either rightly quoting it or wrongly twisting it for the purpose of hurting or damaging someone else or making yourself look better? Ever do that with your children? Ever do that with your parents? With your spouse, another brother and sister in Christ, someone who goes to a different church? God calls us to learn the word of God, to grow in our knowledge of it, to love it, to follow it, and we need to be careful that we use it rightly. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We know that it is through the Spirit's work that our eyes are opened, our hearts are prepared,